All right, Will family, how's everybody doing out there today? Glad that you are here with us on this glorious Sunday morning. And so those of you I have not had the chance to meet yet, my name is Pastor Adrian Pina. I'd love to have the opportunity to shake your hand, give you a hug after service. Um, those of you who are joining us online, thank you guys for being here this morning. We are going to continue our journey. We started a couple weeks ago in the book of Esther. I hope that you guys are enjoying our trek through this book, and I would encourage you to just reread this book as we go along. It's a, it's a short book in some ways. I mean, you can read it in one setting in probably 30, 40 minutes. And so I would encourage you to keep on reading the story as we put the narrative pieces together as we journey through the book together. I do want to start with a word of apology, though, to start off, okay? I realized that when we started this series a couple weeks ago, I had in my notes to basically warn parents in advance of the more mature content of last week, and I actually forgot to then mention that uh, before we actually got into last week, because last week, everything else may have been PG-13, last week was maybe rated R, okay? So that being said, I apologize, parents, for doing that in advance uh, as we talked about some uh, pretty substantial stuff last week uh, as far as... Uh, as we looked at The Bachelor, so to speak, in chapter 2. So just a way of reminder of where we were last week, uh, in a much more tame version of that, we'll just say that we looked at King Ashuerus. Remember, Queen Vashti has basically been put to the side. He's in search of a new king. So now everybody uh, gathers around him and says, you know, we see that this guy's depressed, basically. Let's get him another woman. So let's go ahead and host the first ever season of The, of the Bachelor. And so that's exactly what we did, uh, what they did. And so we played off the format of the show, and we talked about and gave you the dating profile of the king. We also looked at who the contestants were, and then we also saw finally who the victor was in Queen Esther being selected. Selected. Now, as a way of reminder, our one true statement from last week was that God works through flawed people in circumstances for his purposes. So God works through flawed people and circumstances for his purposes. And that was very evident because what, what happens in chapter 2 really is kind of tragic. And so this weird contest that essentially goes on, and yet somehow God is working in the midst of that, and he's going to then be able to preserve his people through the outcome of this first season of The Bachelor. Now, there is one main, there's a couple main themes in the book of Esther, and there's two words that I want to reiterate to you every single week because they're two sides kind of the same proverbial coin, and I want these always to be at the forefront of your mind as we read through this book because we're going to see, continuously see these themes woven throughout. So we talked about the sovereignty of God. The sovereignty of God is God's comprehensive rule over all of life. That speaks to God's authority. That speaks to God's power. That speaks to the extent of which his domain is. That speaks to the totality of his person and his being over all of creation. Then we talked about the providence of God, which is really the other side of that coin. Providence is God's gracious activity throughout history. It's the way in which he works in history his actual sovereign power and authority. So it's the outworking of that sovereignty as it works into human history. And these two ideas and themes are encapsulated so perfectly in the story of Esther. That's why I've called this series Esther, the providence of God, okay, because we see these images. So we're going to pick up today at the end of chapter 2. So if you want to open a Bible or want to follow us along electronically, we are going to finish, we're going to finish up chapter 2 and we're going to also get into chapter 3 of this book. But let me go ahead and start by just giving you a, a little bit of an illustration. How many of you have ever found yourself in a situation where you have done everything right, 
but you did not receive the recognition or reward for what you have done. In fact, you may have actually been punished or criticized for what you have done. Anybody ever do the right thing and then all of a sudden get criticism and or not get the recognition because you did the right thing? We've all likely experienced that in some way or another because life is not fair in that way. We may think about this within a work context. Imagine you have a project at work. You have done all the work. You've worked your tail off of this project. You've worked extra hours. You've done things outside of your job description, your purview. You've done all of these things for this specific project, everything your boss wanted you to do. You get it done, and at the end of the day, you don't get credit for it. You don't even get acknowledged, and somebody else gets credit and praise for it instead of you. How would you feel then in that case? Right? We all would not feel very good. You put in all the work. You didn't get any of the recognition, and especially if somebody else gets the recognition for that, for all the work that you have done, then we obviously don't feel very good about that. Well, a few years ago, there was a film release called Hidden Figures. Anybody ever seen the film for Hidden Figures? Really good film if you haven't seen it, by the way. So Hidden Figures, it was a film about three African-American women who helped NASA during the space race with Russia during a time when civil rights was still being fought out. And the story is really, really interesting, and it traces how these women are intimately involved in the background of everything that's going on in NASA. In this movie, one of the ladies, Katherine Johnson, who actually just is about to celebrate this February, will be three years since her passing, was a brilliant mathematician, and she is rejected throughout the movie by her, her superior, Paul Stafford, because he is threatened by her, because she's a woman, and because she's an African-American. Everything she comes up with when she types the reports given to her superiors, she tries to put her name on as the co-author and is continuously rejected. He would rip it up right in front of her because she could not put her name on the work because of her position, even though he was utilizing her actual work, which she did. Now, I want you to think about this in a spiritual sense. Sometimes I think that we have the inclination to think that if I just work hard enough for God, then things are going to work out really good for me. We may never necessarily say that, but I think subconsciously or even through our actions and attitudes, we may think that. We think that we deserve something from God because we're doing the right thing. God, I'm saying the right thing. I'm living the Christian life the right way. I'm praying this amount. I'm tithing to my church. I'm serving in my church. I'm doing this X, Y, and Z. And we think that at the end, at the end of that equation should equal blessing or favor or whatever the case may be. So we go about this, and sometimes we're living on our own human strength, and we're doing our best to live for God, and sometimes we can feel forgotten. God, do you even notice me? God, do you even know I'm here? God, do you even care? And we can look around, and we can always fall into the trap of comparison and look at those who seem like they can care less about God, and yet they're doing pretty well in their life. They seem to be less concerned about God, and yet they seem to get all the blessing. They get the high-paying jobs with the frequent raises while you are at that dead-end job with no potential, no potential for moving up the supposed corporate ladder, and you are the working poor. It may be a situation where... There's other people that seem to get better treatment. They get nice houses, nice cars, while you're in the one that's falling apart and your car constantly needs, constantly needs care. They have no health problems while yours seem to run the gamut. In situations all like this, it's very easy to get bitter. It's very easy to blame others. And it's especially easy at times for us to blame God. God, you just don't care. You forgot about me. This is very real honest stuff because if you read the Psalms, 
The psalmist actually says this. How long, O Lord, will you forget me? It's a very real human reality. That at times, there are, there are times and seasons in our life where God seems to be nearer, and we seem to be more connected to him, and there are times when we have desert seasons where he seems to be further away. And we can think that he's forgotten about us. In the Bible, as a matter of fact, it's very common for godly men and women to always seemingly get the proverbial short end of the stick. Even though it seems like they're doing everything right. Here's my one true statement for you as we venture into the scripture this morning. Is that faithfulness to God does not exclude you from difficulties. That's something I think we know. I think it's something that we genuinely understand. But I think it's something that's worth reiterating and consistently telling yourself. God never promises us this side of heaven that we will not go through trial and difficulty. God never promises us that life will be the tiptoe through the tulips and that it will just be good and everything will be great. But here's my encouragement. If I subtexted this, here's my encouragement. Be faithful anyway. Be faithful anyway. And I'm going to tell you why we are to be faithful anyway. Regardless of the fact that if our faithfulness to God does not exclude us from difficulties, we should be faithful anyway. As we continue through the book of Esther, we're going to get introduced now to the villain of the story. And now the main plot is going to start to come into being. And we see a righteous man, Mordecai, who we were introduced to last week, whose actions are overlooked. In fact, the villain of the story, Haman, actually gets a promotion that should actually go to Mordecai initially. And not only does he get a promotion, Haman then wants to punish Mordecai for doing the right thing. Yet we can look at Mordecai and learn to be faithful even during difficult circumstances. So as we pick up in the scripture, we're going to notice two things about Mordecai this morning. And we're going to start in Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 19. So Esther chapter 2, starting in verse 19. And the first thing I want us to see is that Mordecai is overlooked. Mordecai is overlooked. Look at verse 19. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. We'll talk a little bit about what king's gate actually means. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her. For Esther obeyed Mordecai just as it was, just as when she was brought up by him. Verse 21. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bichthin and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ashuerus. Verse 22. And then this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told it to the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So there's a few moving parts that are happening here at the end of chapter 2. So we're told that Mordecai is sitting, or he basically works at the king's gate. The king's gate was basically the area outside of essentially the palace in the capital where people settled legal matters. So it's probably likely that Mordecai held some type of governmental position, potentially as a judge or some type of magistrate, because that's where he resided and that's where we're introduced to him at. The author tells us again in verse 20 that Esther is hiding her true cultural background. And he uses the, the gift of repetition, as he's mentioned this earlier on in chapter 2, that to come to tell, when you see something repeated in the Bible, it's important. 
Can I just say that? All right, that's 101 Bible study. If you see repetition in the Bible, it's important, especially when it occurs in the same chapter. So the fact that she's hiding her cultural background is going to, if you know this story, come into play later on. And so this is very significant and important. So Mordecai's at work. Let's set the stage. Mordecai's at work at the king's gate doing whatever he does. All of a sudden, he overhears the conversation. He hears the conversation by about two other people working essentially for the king who are plotting to assassinate him. Now, we do not know why these men are angry. We don't know what problem they have with the king. All we know that... You know that for somebody to jump to the point of wanting to murder and execute another individual, they got to be mad for some reason, okay? There's got to be something that's pushed them over the edge that they want to go ahead and execute an individual. And we're not just talking about any individual. We're talking about basically the guy who's the most powerful man in the known world at that time, they want to execute him. That's taking it to a whole nother level, okay? So these guys, something angered them. We're not told in the text what it is, but they want to go ahead and assassinate the king. And they already are starting to make plans. So Mordecai overhears this. And you would think for the sake of just job security alone, it would be really good for him to report what exactly happened. So here's Mordecai. He overhears it, and he's, he's at the king's gate. So then he reports exactly what he is told, what he overhears. And then as he reports that to Esther, it's reported back to the king. It's that there's an investigation that takes place, and the criticism is warranted. Mordecai, in this situation, in the scripture, we're not told after they're executed. Nothing is said about Mordecai being thanked. He's not recognized. He doesn't get a raise. He doesn't get any type of acknowledgement. The king doesn't send him a personal letter. The, the king doesn't get, throw a feast. We know this guy likes to party. You would think that by saving his own skin, hey, let's throw a party. You know, this is a great excuse to throw a party. I'm not going to die today. Somebody's not going to assassinate me. None of that goes on. It's like as if Mordecai does this thing and it's just not recognized. It's executed on, but it's not recognized. Now think about this in a modern context for a moment. Let's go ahead and transpose this to our day. Now imagine you overhear a plot to assassinate the president. Now regardless of whatever you think about President Biden, but imagine you actually are outside and somehow you are privy to a conversation that there are two individuals that have a plan and are starting to work on the execution of that plan to be able to assassinate the president. So you do the right thing. You get in touch with some type of government official, whatever the case may be. You tell them about the plot. The plot is investigated. These two individuals are apprehended and the president's life is spared. Now, if that was today, especially in our social media context, your face be all over Twitter, you'd be all over the news, you'd probably get some type of medal, maybe get invited to the White House, get some meal, get a personal letter, whatever the case may be. You'd be trending on social media, you'd be considered a hero because you stopped this assassination plot. Here's the reality, ladies and gentlemen, is sometimes... We as people, and I say we, adding myself included, we as people get mad at God because we feel like we're being overlooked. And when we feel like we're being overlooked, it can lead to bitterness in our hearts. And that bitterness then starts to flow out of us. Because we feel like somehow we've been slighted by God. That God, you know, I'm doing all these things and I'm doing the right thing and really I feel like things should be different. How come my life looks like this when other person's life looked like this or when I feel like there should be something else? There's got to be more than this. And so this bitterness starts flowing like a stream out of us. 
But your faithfulness to God and my faithfulness to God should not be tied to what we think we can get from him. God doesn't owe me anything. God doesn't owe you anything. So my faithfulness is not predicated on the fact of, okay, it's a give and get relationship. If you think about it, the very fact that the creator of the known universe and even universes unknown to us outside of our human, human scope and reality, the creator of all life, the very fact that he wants to have a relationship with you, the very fact that he makes it possible for you and him to have relationship, it is a one-sided relationship. In many ways, don't you ever think, what does God really get from me? I mean, we give God our lives and we give as worship and that's exactly what we should give. And God delights and joys in that. He doesn't have need of it and yet he determined and he makes and he's, and he's joyful in the rejoicing and worship and praise of his people. But let's not get it twisted. God does not lack anything. So God, out of his infinite love and his grace, decides and he wants to have this relationship with his creation. And to do so, he doesn't, it's not a give and take relationship in that way. It's not like, okay, I do something, then all of a sudden the divine God of the universe is then like this genie in a bottle who basically is now obligated to do exactly what I want him to do. That's not how this works. Faithfulness is not about reward. Let me say something very pointedly but graciously. If your faithfulness to God is predicated on what you think you can get from him, you will not be faithful to him. Let me say that again. If your faithfulness to God is predicated on what you think you can get from him, you will not be faithful. Because the reality is, is that even as human beings, we are often faithless and yet he remains faithful. <laughs> Even as a person who wants to serve God, I'm not always faithful. Now, if I feel like God is obligated to me in some way, you will never walk in faith. Your relationship with God will be nothing more than transactional. It'll be conditional. It'll be based upon what you think. It, it'll be like some divine transaction that takes place, and God is not looking for that. God is looking for honesty and sincerity in our relationship. Faithfulness is not about reward. It's deeper than that. We are faithful to God because of his unwavering faithfulness to us. The God of the universe is unwaveringly faithful to his children. He's a jealous God. He's a protective God. He is a father, as he shows himself to be in Scripture. He is unwaveringly faithful, even though we are very faithless at times. That's what is beautiful about him. Remember what you feel, ladies and gentlemen, and what is true is not always the same thing. We may feel forgotten, but we are not forgotten. We may feel rejected, but we are not rejected. What we have to do is remind ourselves consistently of what does God say to be true. Because God is true and let every man be a liar. And what God says to be true, that he is with us always that is what I reside in and fall back on always. Because my feelings will lie to me. Your feelings will lie to you. So let's tap back into the reality of God's faithfulness to us as his children. Mordecai will eventually get Haman's position, but he doesn't know that, and he can't know that at this time. 
But just like Mordecai, we need to trust God is leading us in our lives and that he ultimately knows what's best. Let's look at chapter 3. So now I want you to see about Mordecai. Not only is Mordecai seemingly at the beginning at least overlooked, but then Mordecai stands tall and he stands for something. Mordecai stands tall. Esther chapter 3, starting in verse 1. After these things, King Ashuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who are with him. Remember I told you last week that this story in many ways has a lot of parallels to the story of Joseph in some different ways. And I think that this is a little bit of a parallel here as well. And all of the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman. All the people who worked for the king in the judicial area all bowed down once this guy was actually promoted. And he basically became second in command. For the king had so commanded concerning him. The king actually commanded everybody to do exactly what they did. But Mordecai did not bow down and pay homage. Look at verse 3. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? Why are you making trouble for us? Just do what the king said. Verse 4. And when they spoke to him day after day, he would not listen to them. So day after day he told them. And then they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. So now we start getting more of the story. Verse 5. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. He wanted to throw some hands. He wanted to get his hands on Mordecai. And so as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, a.k.a. that he's a Jew, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews. The people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ashuerus. Not a little bit of an overreaction by any stretch of the imagination. This one joker does not want to bow down to me. I'm going to eradicate them all. Get rid of all of them. Because he doesn't want to bow down. He doesn't want to show me respect. So I'm going to show him. And I'm going to take out all his people. So now we get introduced to the villain of the story. Haman. Haman is introduced as an Ag Agagite, which is an intentional reference to the tension between the Israelites and his descendants. He's a descendant of the Amalekites. If you read your old, other parts of the Old Testament, the Amalekites were a wicked and evil people. Exodus 17, 16, by the way, verse reference for you, says that God will wage war against them forever. God declared that they were such an evil and wicked people that God declared war on them forever. And so he's a descendant of these people who are enemies of the nation of Israel. So here is this man who's elevated. He just gets introduced onto the scene. And Mordecai probably should have been elevated into that position. Makes you think of Joseph when he gets forgotten and gets overlooked, even though when he's serving in the household and then also when he interprets dreams. But then here you go. He gets overlooked. Another guy gets rise to power instead and has plenty of power and authority. And he can command people to bow down to him as a sign of respect and recognition, and yet Mordecai stands up and he refuses. Look at verse 3 again. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's commands? They keep asking him day after day after day after day, Mordecai, when are you going to finally bow down? Start making trouble for us. We know once they find out he's a Jew, they're like, they go and tell, and they say, okay, now we understand why he's not bowing down, but we ain't letting him make trouble for us. He's a Jew, this is the situation, Haman, and then Haman goes into action. Just go with it. 
Just roll with it, man. Just, just bow down. Then this will all be over for all of us. What we could say is that Mordecai was literally standing up for what he believed to be right. Mordecai stood up, not believing to bow down to any authority or any power. And he does not bow down. And in his literal standing and not bowing, he's making a statement. He's making a statement toward Haman. The text doesn't tell us directly why Mordecai did what he did. Maybe it's a combination of religious and political reasons, but don't miss the point. The point is, is that Mordecai's decision to defy Haman enrages him to the point that starts the plot thread in this narrative story that his decision would not affect just him, but it would affect all of the Jews in that area. Sometimes when we do what is right, sometimes when we make the tough decision, our decisions never are made in a vacuum and they never just affect us. Here is a man who's doing what we would probably, now that we know the story and we're reading it, we would say he's doing the right thing. But doing the right thing, please do not think of the end of the story because you know it. Mordecai doesn't know the end of the story at this point. And we're going to see how he reacts and calls the fast and he starts freaking out and tells Esther, they're going to kill all of us, including you. Remember, you're a Jew too. They're going to kill you too. And he thinks that this is all in relationship to a decision that he made because his decision doesn't just affect him but would affect everybody, all the Jews in the area. Sometimes when you stand for what you believe in, there will be a price to pay. There will be a reckoning that will come. Our decisions carry weight. Decisions aren't something to be made very lightly, especially sometimes when we're standing up for something we believe to be true, as he is. There will be a price to pay. Today in our world, in our culture in which we live, with our news cycle and with social media and everything, we see everybody standing up for something in which they say that they believe in. Whether that's Black Lives Matter, pro-life, pro-choice, support of gun control, against gun control, immigration reform, non-integration reform, insert whatever your hotbed topic is. My point is not to comments or give commentary on those issues themselves, but just to unearth something. And let me say this, please, as a Christian, if you are here today and you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus and you say you live under the banner in the name of being a Christian and being in Christ, then we believe that the scripture and we believe that God is true. We believe that there actually was a man named Jesus. We believe that that man was not only God, but he was also man. We believe that he died. We believe that he rose from the dead. We believe that placing faith in him then allows us to experience salvation. We believe all of those things, but we don't just believe statements of truth. We believe he is the truth. In his person, in his being, we believe Jesus is the truth. We believe that he's the remedy to the sin problem. We think with a Christ kind of focus and lens. Now, saying that, the gospel and the scripture itself by nature is confrontational. Here's what I mean by that. The gospel says, you're a sinner, you change, God doesn't. The gospel says that you're not righteous, but you can be righteous by receiving that through Jesus. 
The gospel isn't just the thing that saves us as well. It's the thing that changes the, total, the totality and trajectory of our life, the way in which we think and we operate, not only in relationship to God, but in relationship to the world in which we then find ourselves encultured into. And what we say we believe as Christians a lot of times is in direct conflict to the world in which we live every day. Do you not believe that? The reality is, is that if you believe certain orthodox faith kind of truths, a lot of that stands in contrast to the pluralistic world in which we live. And that's just the reality and the nature of it. But here's the thing. It's a very fine line to walk as a believer, to walk in grace and truth. I hear a lot of people sometimes, they walk on the truth side all the time. True, 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 truth, right? And the reality is, is that they are communicating in a way that's not gracious, not loving, and not showing that truth with the spirit in which Jesus intended. That's a very fine line to walk. Did you know that if you read the scripture, I challenge you, read the scripture, God never tells us to curse the world and expect the world to live the way in which you live. If you're a person who's a believer in Jesus, God never intends for you to be up on your platform and just basically speak into the darkness, cursing the darkness all the time, and just thinking somehow that's going to promote change. That's not really how it works. Salvation is a supernatural kind of working of the Holy Spirit to bring the conviction of sin where literal scales fall off, metaphorically speaking, off the eyes where people then are able to see. And that's something God does, not what we do. We can't expect somebody who's a, not a believer to act like a believer. We can't expect somebody who does not place their faith in Jesus then to start acting Christ-like. Because if we read scripture, they're of their father the devil. They're dead in trespass, sin, and sin. This is the Ephesians 2 stuff when we preach through the book of Ephesians. So as believers... Even though the truth in which we proclaim and we promote conflict, conflicts is in direct confrontation with the world around us. We live in this tension as we live in this world. This, this relationship between grace and truth and being able to be salt and light in the midst of this darkness. But sometimes what you, will, what you believe in will have you hated by some, loved by others. Genuinely persecuted by some. There's a cost to following Jesus. If the gospel cost Jesus his life, how could you and I ever believe that it would cost us anything less? Let me say that again. If the gospel cost Jesus his life, how can you and I ever think that it would cost us anything less? It costs us everything. Standing up for Jesus in this world guarantees certain levels of rejection, but per his word, what matters is the approval of the Father. Galatians 1, it reminds me of that if we seek the approval of men, then we will not essentially receive that from God. We will carry up another doctrine or another kind of teaching. There will come a time, if it has not already in your life as a believer, where you will stand for something that you, desire, that you believe to be true. And that there will be difficulties that result as in direct confrontation to that reality. It may be the loss of a job. It may even be physical persecution if it comes to that. The loss of a relationship. But the question is, at the end of the day, is it worth it to you? But here's the thing that, the tension that I want you to see in the midst of this. 
is that just because we live in a world that has a multiplicity of different views in a very pluralistic society, which I mean, what I mean by that is that it's like a melting pot of all kind of different views that we live in, many of which stand in direct contrast and conflict with the gospel and what it means to be a follower of Jesus. This is not unique to us. Even when we read the scripture, it says that basically there's this system we call the world. The world doesn't mean the globe in which we spin on right now that we call earth that we reside on right now. The world is a system and way of thought and living that is against God. It's anti-Christ, literally. So it's anti-Christ. That world, as we come in and we try to be the representatives of Jesus, just like it was in contrast when Jesus walked this earth, is the same thing with his followers. They hated me, they'll hate you. But what I am saying as well is don't go around with a chip on your shoulder with a war against the world. Jesus loved this world so much that he came and made it possible for everyone to receive him. I don't want you to walk around like an angry Christian hating the world because your Savior came to die for it. Just because there's a bunch of people around you sinning because they don't know Jesus, don't expect them to act like you. Don't expect them to think like you. I find it very peculiar when Christians aren't able to sit across the table from somebody who has different views than them. When I read the Gospels, Jesus was a friend of sinners, so much so that people just, they, he was attractional to them. They wanted to come and talk to Jesus, even when he read their mail. Even when he told them things that, like, I mean, legitimately, he said things that, I'm like, whoa, apparently he didn't go to a political correctness class. And yet in the midst of that, they still come to him, and they want to sit there, and they want to talk to him. I want you to be that kind of Christian. I think that's what it means to be salt and light. Salt and light preserves. Light is attractive. It repels darkness. Don't be one of those people that people say, oh, man, those dirty, rotten Christians, all they are is ever judgmental. They say this, they say that, and they live another way. I want you to be able to sit across the table from another individual that may think completely different than you and still love them in a way that would be emblematic of Jesus. To walk that line and that tension between grace and truth. And that's a hard line to walk sometimes. But this world desperately needs that. This world needs that from you. It needs that from me. Let's summarize this for you today. Our one true statement was this, that faithfulness to God does not exclude you from difficulties. But my encouragement to you, looking at the story of Mordecai, is be faithful anyways. Be faithful anyways, because our faithfulness to God should not be predicated on what we think we can receive from God. Our faithfulness to God is because we serve an unwavering, completely consistent and faithful God. We can trust him. We can depend on him. We know he's always going to be the same yesterday, today, and forever. We saw how Mordecai was first overlooked. He did the right thing in forming the king of this assassination plot, yet it seems like he gets no recognition. He's overlooked for this position, and yet... He still does the right thing. And then we see Mordecai stand tall. He stands up for what he knows to believe, what he believes in, in exact opposition to the word of the king and to the desire of Haman. And yet when you and I stand up for what you believe in, you can expect opposition because Jesus faced it. And as a matter of fact, he promised it would come. Our level of commitment to Jesus does not exclude us from these difficulties. And because the gospel cost Jesus his life, he so demands that from us as well. It would cost us nothing less. So how do we put this into practice? Then we're going to pray. So I want you to ask yourself this one question. Are you willing to stand? Are you willing to stand? We all stand for things passively 
or sometimes aggressively, sometimes intentionally, non-intentionally, if you're a believer in Jesus or not. We all stand for something. We all have certain beliefs, decisions, things that we have founded our lives upon, things that we believe to be uh, things that are non-negotiable for us. If you're a Christian, I hope that the gospel and the scripture is kind of the way in which you orient yourself, your thoughts, and your life. But I believe that there is an outcry that's coming and has already come in many ways where if you continue to believe certain things that are taught in the scripture as we continue to plow through as this church will always be committed to preaching the gospel fully, preaching the Bible, sound biblical teaching, that reality will continue to come in conflict with a world that is very anti-Christ. And my prayer for all of us is let's pray for some courage. And I'm not saying the courage to be a jerk about it. What I am saying is the courage to be able to stand when opposition does come. To be able to stand not in a sense of like, okay, we're already always ready for war, but being able to stand where our faith is not shaken in spite of the rejection we may experience, the relationships that may be severed, the jobs that may be lost, all of those things, because we serve a God who is worthy of our faithfulness, regardless of what may come. Let's pray, and then we're going to have a time of prayer. Well, Lord, you are worthy of it all. And you are worthy of our allegiance, you are worthy of our sacrifice, you are worthy of our honor, you are worthy of our lives. And Lord, it's not easy, because we live in a world that is, a culture that is broken, has been infected and affected by sin. And this world groans for redemption, and all who inhabit it. We see the effects of sin around us daily, and we see how there are thoughts, there are ideas, there are worldviews, there are things that clash and are consistently at war with, with what, you believe, what we believe and what you stand for. And so, God, I pray that you would help us to walk that fine line between grace and truth, to be persons of peace, to be peacemakers, to be able to, to have conversations with those who may be able to, who think differently than us and be able to do so in a way that is loving, even as we express the things in which we believe. And Lord, I pray that even this week that some of those conversations will open up with family members, with coworkers, with those, with complete strangers who are around us, and that you would give us the opportunity to be able to do that. But help us to have the courage, Lord, in the midst of this world, as there are many things and many different uh, beliefs that are being tossed around, and allow us to be able to steadfast and stand firm in you because we love you and we trust you, and because you are faithful. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, guys, we're going to have a time of prayer right now, so I want to ask the prayer team to come forward. And so every Sunday, you know, we take the opportunity, if you're here at Firewheel, we believe in the power of prayer. We believe the, that, you know, one of the ways we can love one another is through prayer. And so if you have a specific prayer request, then we encourage you, whatever it may be, to allow one of these prayer partners to be able to pray with you. And during this time, we're going to take the opportunity to worship. So if you would like to stand or if you'd like to be seated wherever you are and, and be able to worship, I want to encourage you, this is a time to engage. Process what you just heard through this message. Pretend like it's just you and God in this room and let's take some time to engage and to worship. What we're doing right now is sacred and holy. It's not something where we're just spectators. 
And uh, let's go ahead and worship together. Let's take a time to be able to pray.
is the time I can run away and love will never stop You're with me in the morning, in the dead of night You're not leaving Hallelujah We are certainly grateful for that reality, Lord so we're going to take the opportunity, if it's your first time here, we're grateful that you are here. If it's your first time joining us online, uh, we'd love to be able to connect with you. Uh, if you take the opportunity to fill out the connection card, uh, you can take your smartphone and scan the digital code that is behind me. That will just bring you to a short form. Or make sure that as you exit the auditorium today, if it's your first time here, stop by our Welcome Center. There's a physical card that you can fill out. we just love to see where you're at in your spiritual journey, see where we can come alongside of you to be able to help you and to come alongside of you wherever you're at and, and give you a special gift for worshiping with us today. And so um, I'd love to be able to meet you, and hopefully we'll be able to connect that way. I'm going to ask the ushers to come forward. We're going to go to worship the Lord through giving, give you a few announcements, and then we'll get you out of here. So I want to thank you in advance for your gracious giving, and the Lord is good. He continues to provide for us individually and corporately as a church, and uh, it costs money to do ministry on earth. That's the reality. <laughs> and so if we want to have a facility like this and be able to worship, you know, those things aren't glamorous, but God is good, and it allows us to be able to continue our mission and to be able to reach this community that God has called us to. So thank you for your gracious giving. Let's pray. So, Lord, we're grateful for the opportunity to give. We recognize that all things come from you. You are the giver of life, and every perfect and good gift comes from you. Thank you that you continuously provide for us individually and corporately. And I pray that you would take this offering that we give as an act of worship to you, that it would be fragrant in that way and symbolically, and that, God, that you would cause it to multiply, that you would allow us to continue your work here and continue the faithfulness that you have shown for so many years to this church. And so, Lord, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Hello, and welcome to Firewheel Bible Fellowship, where we strive to be Christ-centered and gospel-focused. Here's what's happening at Firewheel. Youth ministry continues this Wednesday, while the adults join Doug Doherty for the second class of Couples Talk. Child care will be available. Regular Wednesday night programming for men's and women's Bible studies, along with kids' ministry, begins February 15th at 7 p.m. This Friday at 6.30 p.m., join us for a night of worship and prayer as we come together to praise and honor our Savior. Prayer warriors will also be available to pray with you. Parents, need a night out? Drop off the kids in the children's building on Friday, February 10th from 6 to 8.30 p.m. and go out on a date or get some much-needed self-time. There will be pizza, indoor games, outdoor games, popcorn, and a movie for the kids. There is no set cost for this event, but we will be taking donations that will go towards sending kids to camp. For more info on these or any of the events going on around Firewheel, check us out at firewheelfellowship.com events, or you can find us on social media. All right, guys, if we get you to stand, we'll go in and say our benediction and get you dismissed. Um, if you can, after the service, uh, Chris and the worship team need a little help removing some chairs as we're going to get start getting prepped for worship night. So uh, after, just want to hang out. Chris will give us some direction. We'll go ahead and move some chairs. So please, if y'all can help out with that, that would be great. So may the Lord go before you to light your path and give you direction. May he go behind you to guide your steps. May he go beside you to keep you from stumbling. May he go above you to protect you, and may he go within you to give you the power of the Holy Spirit. And may our Father in heaven always grant you 
the character that is greater than your gifts and humility that is greater than your influence. God bless you guys. We love you all so much. You are dismissed. If you want to stick around and help us move chairs out of here, that would be awesome. I would appreciate it. Please, 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 pretty please, start stacking.